and uh, it's just been a tremendous um, brother in Christ, um, serving in so many different ways. What I love about Kerry is his love first for the Lord, his love for people, his love to reach out to those in the community here. And um, it's been a joy just to work alongside him. I know his heart, and as much as a man can know a man's heart, we've played together much, and it's just been a joy to have him here over the past year, he and Lisa. And um, we're excited. First time that we preached here. Yeah. He teaches a lot in Mosaic, but uh, it's a joy to have you here. Which goes what? Thank you. I love this church. And I just can't tell you how excited I was when the leadership of this church asked me to begin the process of becoming the associate pastor of outreach. I'm so honored by that. I love the people in this church, the people in this neighborhood and this community. And today we're going to be talking about a crucial step in the outreach of this church. And that is standing out in order to reach out. And I think, I think to some degree we all know what it feels like to stand out. Sometimes it feels good. Sometimes we're honored at our schools or at our workplace. But often it's embarrassing to stand out. And for some reason, this particular way of standing out, I'm an expert in. I just have a slew of embarrassing stories. And as I was going through my mind, trying to figure out which one do I want to share with my family, here, goodness, I thought to myself, yes, yes, it has to be the Ecuadorian firework fiasco. I was, I was living and studying in a small town in Ecuador for a while, and one of my favorite things to do was to leave my house in the evening and just get lost. Just wander around and get to know people and get to know places. And I, I, it was just an incredible time. But the most incredible moment was this one night when they were having a firework festival. It was out of this world. They were taking these huge globes that they made out of paper mache, filling them with helium, lighting them on fire, and just letting them float up into the sky. And there were these dozens of these burning orbs all over the sky. And they would just fall down wherever they did. I saw one fall down right in the middle of the street, and everybody starts to, like, you know, kind of get it out. And then... There was a big crowd of people, and several of the guys had these huge masks on of dragons or rats or something like that, and they had these huge mouths, and they would literally be shooting little fireworks out of their mouths at the kids. So it was out of this world, so I tried to avoid them. But, but the best part of the evening was the grand finale. And the people had built this 20-foot tower made entirely out of fireworks. And so at the end of the night, they took some torches and they just lit the bottom of the tower and it started to go up in this blaze of glory, just fireworks shooting off everywhere. And so I was like, I have got to get this on film. 
No one is going to believe me that they lit a tower made out of fireworks. So this is the moment when I started to stand out. And I got my little camera out, and as I was walking towards the tower, and the fire was moving upwards, I didn't know that the crowd was moving backwards. And I also didn't realize that the top of the tower had toppled down to the ground. It had collapsed. And I was trying to look at it in my little two-inch LED screen. This big old firework comes rocketing out of the top of the tower and hits me right in the chest. Just right there. It was so startling. It hit me so hard, it knocked me onto my back. And then the firework must have landed somewhere next to me because it starts going off. And there's all these sparks all around me. All I can see is just sparks everywhere. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to die. I'm going to die right in this firework. And then the next thing I know, this hero of a man comes from the fringe of the crowd, grabs my hand, and, and pulls me out. And everybody was looking at me, like, where did this guy come from? And I was standing out like a sore thumb. All Christians must stand out. And I, I don't mean standing out because of ignorance, like me in Ecuador. And I don't mean standing out for the sake of just standing out. But I mean because it's a calling. And we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians, walking in a manner worthy of our calling. And that God has made us different, so we are to live different. And if we do that, you can be sure that we will stand out. We are all called to stand out. And God calls us to stand out, not in every way. We are not to reject everything about everything around us, but in particular ways. God calls us to stand out. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, lays out three ways that we are to stand out as the people of God. And that is through imitation, separation, and cultivation. So the first is imitation. And that's found in verses 1 and 2. And I'll read them aloud to you again if you can follow along in your Bibles in front of you. We're going to be jumping back in frequently, so if you can just keep it open and follow along. Verses 1 and 2 go like this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We find in, in these two verses that the way, the first way we're called to stand out is by imitating God's self-giving love. These two verses explain first why we are called to stand out and then how we are called to stand out. So first, why? And you'll notice that the first word of this passage is therefore. And I think it's our tendency to skip by these little words. At least it's my tendency to do so. But I think we should treat them more like those go back two spaces spots in board games. 
every time you hit it, you have to reverse. I remember just last year, Lisa and I were playing shoots and ladders with our four-year-old niece. And this four-year-old niece just walloped us because we kept on hitting a, a square that was a shoot, and a shoot sends you backwards. And so every time we would move forward, we'd hit one of these squares, and then we'd move backwards, and move backwards, and move backwards, and it took us a long time to finish the game. And that's what it should be like when you read the book of Ephesians, because there's therefores all over the place. And once we hit one, we should slide backwards. And it will take longer to read the book, but I tell you, the insights we will get is worth it. So let's move a little bit backwards. In chapter 4, verse 32, the last five words of that verse says that God in Christ forgave you. So the flow of thought is, because we are forgiven, we are called to imitate God. And notice that it does not say, imitate God in order to be forgiven. But imitate God because you already are. And that's your response. You are already brought into this relationship with Him. And it says, in particular, in verse 1, that the relationship we have is that we are His beloved children. Once again, notice that it doesn't say, imitate God in order to become His children, but because you already are. And I'm kind of... I'm kind of camping on that point because there's a lot of commands in this passage. And I just want it to be clear from the outset that this is not in order for us to win brownie points with God. Christ has already won all the favor that we need when we believe in Him. And this is how we live in response. This is how we live as His children. And children bear the family resemblance, whether it's how they look or how they act. And children have a tendency to pick things up from parents. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. But uh, as, I, as I look to the future and, and, and think about the three kids that we want to have, and I think we decided on the names Webster, Chester, and Dexter. When I think about the three little of joy, something that I want them to pick up is the way that Lisa listens so deeply. Wouldn't that be wonderful to have three kids that just listen like that and, and care for people? But that's what I want for my kids, but what does God want us to pick up from Him? And this is the how. One way, one major way one major thing that we ought to pick up from God is the way that He loves. It says in particular that we are called to walk in love. Notice that it doesn't say just be in love. It's more than a feeling. It's something that you actively do. And the Greek that stands behind it is, means something that you continually do. It's you make a habit out of it. So you're proactively and continually walking in love. And this is a tall order. But it actually gets even bigger because the pattern that we are given is Christ himself. Look at that. 
It says, we are to love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And this is how we will stand out. The distinguishing mark of the love at the cross was a love that gives. I read it again for you. Christ loved us and gave. And as I was studying how these two words are paired in Scripture, I was struck by how often it's brought out. If you flip over your page in the book of Ephesians, it says in chapter 5, verse 25, that Christ loved the church, so he gave himself to her. And my personal favorite verse in the Bible is from Galatians 2.20, which says that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And then... The most famous verse of them all, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. You see, the divine love is a giving love. And if we are to imitate God, we are to become a community of selfless and relentless love givers. And I can tell you that will cause us to stand out. Because this world has a completely different model. This world says you have to win love. You have to figure out how to get it from others. You have to earn it. It might be by having the right clothes or looking the right way or having the right family or saying the right things or having the right skills. Whatever it is, it's up to you to get love. And the market is driven by this. It says, get this and you'll get love. Get this razor and you'll get this woman who just like... Feels the smoothness of your face. Get this thing and you will get love. It might be funny to think about, but actually at the bottom line, it's terrifying for people. Absolutely terrifying. Because what if you mess up and you lose it all? Or what if you never get it in the first place? It's paralyzing to think about that we could go through life and never have the stuff to get love. And it leads to broken families, broken relationships, and broken people. And it breaks my heart how often I hear when I counsel other people the phrase, I am unlovable. May that never be said. And this is where we're called to stand out. Because we say that if the world says the responsibility is up to you to, to get love, we say the responsibility is up to us to get it. And then we stand out. So there's a few implications here. If we really want to live this. Married folks, for you, this means making a commitment to give love every day. And not waiting for your spouse to give you love first. Not waiting for your spouse to earn your love. But waking up every day and just saying, I'm going to give it. And... For single folks, 
This means rejecting the lie that your value is found in your ability to win love. It's a lie. Your calling is to love everyone around you radically. And the right person is going to notice that and say, look at how he loves. Or look at how she loves. That's the kind of person I want to spend the rest of my life with. Watch and see how you will stand out. And for us as a church family, it means loving every single person who walks through that door. Just giving love, regardless of social skills, regardless if they're easy to talk to, or regardless if there might be an emotional burden. We're just called to love everybody and give our love to whoever walks through the door. And if we do this, can you imagine how much we will stand out? Can you imagine how much those doors would just be flooded with people who are just looking to get loved because they haven't been? And I'm, I just want to clarify that I'm not saying that I don't see that in this church because I do. I love this church. But what if we all made a commitment to be defined by this? Everyone, all of us, all together, a radical, selfless, and relentless community of love givers. We don't have to earn it here. We just can give it. And watch and see how we will make an impact for Christ. And lives will be transformed and we will stand out as a beacon of light in this community. Another way we're called to stand out is through separation. And this is found in verses 3 through 8. Let's read them again. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. These verses tell us that the second way we're called to stand out is by separating ourselves from ungodliness. Verse 3 tells us three things in the realm of sexual conduct that we are to avoid. And it's, it says that they're not even to be named among us, which means that there should never be a trace of these things found in our lives. And in particular, he talks about sexual immorality and impurity. And these two words go together to prohibit anything of a sexual nature that is not between a husband and a wife. And this is really broad, and Paul is being deliberately all-encompassing to help you out with the questions about the gray areas. He's telling it to us straight. If it's sexual to any degree, whether it's sexual kissing or touching or casual sex or adultery, if it's not between a husband and wife, it's sin. And I want to underline that the Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. 
where we hear our word porn. And this might not be an actual act of sex outside of marriage, but certainly it is immoral. And certainly it is impure. And in Jesus' most famous sermon, he reminds us that indulging sexual fantasies in our mind is equal to practicing them in our body. Let there be no trace of pornography found in our lives. And then Paul mentions something curious. We're talking about sex, and Paul throws in covetousness, and it seems out of place. But when you think about it, covetousness stands behind sexual immorality and impurity. It is a heart attitude behind it all. And in fact, the Greek word is a, is a compound word, a combination of the word for having and the word for more. And they just slam it together. It's this attitude of always wanting to have more. It's an insatiable desire and a refusable to be content with what you have. And isn't that what premarital sex is saying? I want more. Isn't that what adultery is saying? I want more. And pornography is just saying, I want more. And going too far with your boyfriend and girlfriend is saying, I want more. It reminds me of a musical that I saw in high school called The Little Shop of Horrors. It's about this florist who buys a, a plant that looks like a Venus flytrap and puts it in his shop to sell and it starts dying and even though he's feeding it plant food and then he realizes that it feeds on human blood. So he gives it just a little bit of his and it starts to grow. And then he gives it more and more and discovers that this plant can talk and every day it says, feed me. And so he gives it more and more and more of his blood and it literally sucks the life out of him. And pretty soon this plant gets so big it, call, it starts calling the shots. And it convinces him to feed it the boyfriend of the woman that he loves. So he does. And it grows bigger. And it starts making more demands. And it convinces the florist to feed it his boss. So he does. And it grows bigger. And now it starts making these promises. You're going to be famous. You're going to be able to run away with this woman that you love. Time Magazine is coming. And then one, one terrible accident one evening, the plant eats the woman that he loves. And then eventually it eats him. And isn't that just what covetousness does? This constant demand to feed me. Even if it just starts out with a little bit, it will never have enough. It will suck the life out of you, and if you do not stop it, it will ultimately consume your life and your relationships. This insatiable desire to have more is a serious thing. Paul takes it quite seriously. He goes on in the next verse to say that I don't even want you to talk about sex in a wrong way. He says, filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, there should not even be a trace of these things. So it's just like he's saying, let there be no trace of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity in your life. Let there not be even a trace in what you say. 
because this is such a serious matter. And I just wonder if we take it that seriously. Do we take it that seriously in the movies that we watch? Even if it's just a few scenes or in our relationships and the way we talk at work at school or on Facebook. Are we seeing this as a monster that threatens our lives? It's interesting the solution that Paul offers. It also seems out of place. We're talking about impurity. We're talking about sex. And then all of a sudden Paul says, that's what we Thanksgiving. And it seems out of place. But when you think about it, Thanksgiving is the heart attitude that is opposite to covetousness that stands behind it all. Because covetousness says, I want more. And Thanksgiving says, I have enough. Covetousness says, God, I deserve more. And Thanksgiving says, God, you've given me more than I deserve. So next time you're tempted to engage in premarital sex or pornography or a suggestive conversation with a co-worker, remember that it will not satisfy you. Even if it promises big things, it's a lie. Pull yourself away from the situation. And don't let the accuser tell you that you have nothing, that God has cheated you. Instead, just whatever you do, just start thanking God. And you can start with all that you have in Christ. You can thank Him for forgiveness, for cleaning your past history, for giving you a hope in heaven, for giving you power in this life, for giving you all blessings in the spiritual realm. And then you can start thanking Him for your spouse, thanking for your future spouse, thanking for your kids. And I'm not saying it's going to be an instant fix, but over time, watch and see how your heart attitude will change. Watch and see how that shout to feed me becomes a whisper. And how you can start to ignore it. You see, covetousness is a bottomless pit, but thanksgiving is the way out. And if we're tempted to brush this off and say, wow, I'm kind of just fine. This seems like a lot. This seems like a big change. Paul offers some pretty stern warnings in the next two verses. Verse 5 starts out, You may be sure of this. This is something that you can take to the bank. This is not a gray area. That everyone, no exceptions, who practice these things will not have a part in the kingdom. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say that God's wrath is actually upon the people who practice these things. And these are some really tough words that startle us. They should. They're meant to startle us. They're meant to take a second look at this, and we're going to. We need to tease some of this out. It says that these warnings are targeted at the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience is a Hebrew expression saying that it's something that characterizes someone's life. It's not talking about lapses, but about an attitude of someone who is actively living in these things without feeling sorry and without seeking real change. It characterizes their lives. They don't want to change. And I just want to be clear that this is not referring to those who are actively fighting. 
And even if they slip, they're repenting and setting their face towards making more progress in overcoming this thing. This is not directed at those people. This is directed at the people who justify their behavior and don't want to change. It says that they will have no place in the kingdom. And it seems harsh, and it is. But when you think about it, if you're living to please yourself, if, you, if, if your impulses are calling all the shots in your life, then you are your king. And not Jesus. And that's why you have no part in his kingdom right now. Because in order to be a part of his kingdom, he has to be your king. I, I just remember this grim, repeated phrase in the book of Judges. It says, in those days, there was no king in the land. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, that's the symptom of having no king. You do what's right in your own eyes. And as a, as a result of not having a king, you are excluded from the kingdom by your own choice. And verse 6 says that some people are going to try to deceive you and tell you there's no consequence for living without a king. And that's the exact same thing that Satan said in the Garden of Eden. He said, there's not going to be a consequence for disobeying God. He says, surely you will not die. But his words were empty. And so are these words. Because it says clearly that God's wrath comes upon those who live a life of disobedience to him. And Adam and Eve found that, found that out the hard way. And this is serving as a warning for us so that we don't find that out the hard way. We don't have to. That's what a warning is for. God's wrath is a hard topic to come to grips with. Just to be clear, it is not the same as human anger. Human anger is often the outworking of our own sin and our own selfishness and our own fear. But God's wrath is the outworking of His holiness. And in His holiness, He cannot tolerate evil. He says, my eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And so his wrath is his hostility towards evil, which is an outworking of his holiness. He has to be opposed to evil. And this is a hard truth, but it's something that I'm, I'm, in the end I'm glad about. I'm glad to have a God who is more opposed to evil than I am. I'm glad that God doesn't see human trafficking and genocide and just shrug his shoulders. I'm glad that we can count on the fact that he is constantly opposed to evil. We can take comfort in that. But the trouble is that there's evil in me. And there's evil in you. And there's evil in everyone. But God in his love laid his own wrath on his son to cleanse you from all that evil. His love and His wrath go together. But if you have not received Jesus, not only as your Savior, but also as the King of your heart, then I have to tell you that your evil has not yet been dealt with. 
And as a result of that, God's wrath is still set against you. And this is not something to take lightly. Paul doesn't take it lightly. He says in verse 7 that we are not to even become partners with the people practicing these things. And this is not meaning disassociating ourselves from all unbelievers. Because then we would have to leave planet Earth and maybe go on an island or something like that. It means that, yes, we're supposed to love everybody just like we learned in the first point. Just give love no matter what. Embrace people, but don't join them in their activities. And isn't that how Jesus lived his life? Embracing people, but not joining in their sin. And that's what we're called to. And if we live that, we will stand out. It is something radically different. The language that Paul uses is like the difference between darkness and light. And there is no greater contrast than those two things. I can remember as a camp counselor, one night I took my camper out of the cabin, and, we, and it's, it's in the countryside of Iowa, and we just laid on the grass and fell asleep under the stars. And the moon wasn't even out. It was raining and crescent. And these stars, they just popped in the night sky. This contrast between darkness and light is unmistakable. And that's the way we'll stand out. The third way we'll stand out is through cultivation. And that's found in the last part of verse 8 all the way through 14. And I'll, I'll read it again. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This section tells us that we're called to stand out by cultivating a life that shines with godliness. It begins with a command to walk as children of light. And light is a picture used by biblical authors to communicate holiness and purity. So another way of saying this command is live holy lives, all of us. And then verse 9 tells us what you can expect to see if you're living holy lives. You can expect to see goodness and rightness and truth sprouting up everywhere in your life. And that's how you know you're living a holy life. It's interesting that these three words, goodness and rightness and truth, when you look at how they're used in the Bible, they're most often used to refer to God's holy character. So if we are living a holy life, demonstrating goodness and righteousness and truth, then we will be projecting the holy character of God. And verse 10 says we will even start to make the decisions that He Himself would make for our lives. In fact, verse 9 and 10 go hand in hand. 
if you want a place to, to start choosing what God would choose for your life, then you can step back and ask yourself, is whatever I'm thinking about doing good? Is it true? Is it right? And if it is, you know, this is a holy thing. This is what God would have you to choose. And if it's not, you know that you can find something else. The key is that as a result of this, your character and your daily decisions will shine forth a reflection of God's holiness. And God's holiness shines. It is so pure. And so we shine when we are showing forth His holiness. That's how we shine. Verses 11 through 12 show us that the shining has a dual effect on other people. In verses 11 and 12, we see the first effect. The first effect of shining is that it exposes sin. It, light has this effect of showing things for what they truly are. I, I think about that classic scene that we've seen in a lot of cartoons and a lot of movies where someone is being chased and they see this room or this cave that looks safe and so they run in it and then they're in the dark and they're thinking, yeah, alright, I'm safe and I'm sound and they light a match and there's like a monster or a bear right behind them. Like, ah! And that's what it's like. In the darkness, we seem, it seems like we're safe. In the darkness, things seem harmless. We read in chapter 4 of Ephesians that spiritual darkness fills the minds of those who are outside of Christ. And the same spiritual darkness shrouds sin so that it looks innocent and not harmless. And when we think about it, this even comes out in the terminology that we use. Premarital sex is called living together. Living. And pornography is called adult entertainment. And the love of money is called the American dream. And all these things, they sound harmless. But when the light of God's holiness, reflected through our lives, shines on these things, they are seen for what they truly are. They are destructive, they are grievous, they are an offense to God, they are bondage, and they are sin. And the trouble is that the people who are doing these things would prefer to see them as innocent and harmless. Because then you don't have to come to grips with it. And everybody wants a guilt-free life. And when we shine our lights on the deeds of darkness, you can expect that it will make others feel uncomfortable. And I realize that this is the biggest obstacle to standing out is that we don't want to make others feel uncomfortable. I understand that. I don't. Uh, I don't want someone to feel awkward. You know, I, I kind of want them to do their thing. But at the end of the day, verse 11 commands us, expose these deeds. My best friend did his thesis on the way Hollywood presents Christians in films. The conclusion of his study is that in Hollywood's opinion, the best Christian is a private Christian. But that's not the biblical view. 
We are called to stand out and not to lie low. I know that there's that temptation to lie low, but I want to tell you that it's worth it. And I'm not, the Bible is not calling us to be obnoxious and self-righteous. This process was meant to be soaked by grace because we remember from Ephesians 2 that we all come from the same condition. We were all alienated from God. All of us were disobedient. We were all dead in our sins. It is only by His grace that we've been made new and brought to the light ourselves. And the same grace is offered to everybody. And this process is supposed to be soaked by grace, but I know it will still be difficult. But it is worth it. It is worth it because it's what we're called to. It's worth it because if you look at verse 8, it says that we are light in the world, and not in our own strength. He's going to need us. He's going to give us the power to stand out. And finally, it's worth it because the second function of light is to awaken. And this, by this I mean awaken spiritually. People will come to Christ. And this is found in verses 12 through 14. The language is really compact and terse, but the flow of thought is clear. When sin is exposed, it is made visible, and then people are able to see it for what it truly is. And then they recognize their need for Christ, and they come to the light themselves. And they themselves are transformed into the light, just like we all were. This is the climax of the passage. And it's summed up in three poetic lines. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And isn't that what we want? Exposing plays a key role in this process. We can't skip over it. When sin is exposed, it becomes visible. And then people realize their need for Christ. And I'm not saying that it happens automatically either. It's like you expose somebody's sin and then you're like, okay, your sin is now exposed. It's time for you to come to Christ. Often people are going to retreat back into the light, into the darkness, because that's where they feel comfortable. But even if 100, one in 100 people turned to Christ and 99 retreated, it would be worth it. Because there is more joy in heaven over one person who repents than 99 who don't. It is so worth it to shine our lights. And in the end, that's why we must stand out. We must stand out in order to reach out. It's part of God's plan. People need to see that God is alive by the way He's making a difference in my life and in yours. The world is literally dying to see the difference that God makes in your life. So we're called to stand out. We're called to stand out because God is supremely worthy of it and the world is in dire need of it. So as we close, I would like us to resist avoiding to shuffle. And just take a moment, even just to bow your heads and examine our hearts. This passage was extremely challenging for me. 
It, it has some tall orders. It calls us to some radical things. So let's, let's examine our hearts. Just as I ask you the following questions, as, as I ask these own questions to myself. Who is God calling me to commit to give love to? Without them needing to win it from me. Is there a trace of sexual sin to be found in my life? Is there a trace of it in my speech? How do I need to separate myself from ungodly activities? Do people know that I am a Christian by the way that I am different? Or am I blending in? At work, at school, in the dorms of college, in the halls of the mission home. Am I shrinking back from exposing sin? And lastly, is Jesus the king of my life? Who calls the shots? Or do I live to please myself? And if this is true, if Jesus is not your king, and you realize that because of that, you are not a part of his kingdom, I want to really encourage you to take this moment to get right with him. Because his love is offered to you. God offers you forgiveness and a new life if you turn to him. Place your trust in him for salvation and invite him to be the king of your heart. In a moment, I'm going to call the prayer counselors to come up. And these are some mighty men of God and mighty women of God. And I just want to encourage you, if there is even one thing from this passage that stuck out to you and you feel like you need prayer for this, I want to encourage you to come forward and to receive that prayer. Because we are not meant to take this journey alone. We are to help each other to walk in our calling to stand out. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is so challenging and it is so encouraging all at once. And I pray that you would help us to take it seriously in this moment. I pray that you would show us how we can give love. I pray that you can show us how we can stand out. And I pray that, I pray that we would be the kind of people that show forth who you are, your holiness and your love. And God, we need your help with this. We cling to you, God. Help us, help us, God, to do this. Oh, Lord, in this hour we look to you. And I pray that you would sustain our activities and help us to live differently. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.